0: As we begin our time, I want to um, ask the question, it might seem a little bit odd, right? But I want to ask the question, who is your God? Or what is your God might be a better question. You might want to fire back, Andrew, uh, duh, we're here at church. Jesus is my God. Uh, Jesus is who I worship. That's why I'm here and I'm not at the mosque or at the temple. I'm I'm here to worship Jesus. That's great. I'm glad that you're here. But there's a difference between the God that we might confess and the God that we actually worship. Now, hear me out. As as humans, I think we're all prone to the same error. Uh, We all live with our concept, our own personal concept of hell. We all live with this place that we never want to go, this experience, this this life situation that we never want to be in. And we also live with our own personal concept of heaven, a picture of the good life, how we want things to really be. And what we're doing as human beings is we're always looking for a God that will save us from our idea of hell and take us to our idea of heaven. Here's an example. Imagine that you're uh, single and uh, your idea of hell is being single forever. Now, there's nothing wrong with being single. The Bible affirms single as a great uh, way to live as a follower of Jesus. Uh, but I don't mean to pick on anyone who's single. But just an example. Imagine you're a single lady and your view, idea of hell, the worst possible life you can imagine is to remain single. To have no boyfriend, no husband, no children, just cats. Or if you're a man, just pizza boxes. And your view of heaven is a partner. A partner a wedding, a spouse, a family. And so naturally you want to get out of the hell of your current relationship status and get to the heaven of the happy family. And so what you do is you run to a God who you think can take you there. And so along comes a saviour a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a relationship and you throw your arms around them and you say, save me, never leave me, never forsake me, bless me, be at the center of my life, make my life worth living. Essentially, you're saying by your devotion to this person or to this idea, you're saying, you are my God and I will worship you. I'm going to put you over and above everything else in my life. And we turn that relationship into a functional saviour, an idol. We turn it into a God that's going to deliver us from our idea of hell and take us to our idea of heaven. Uh, Now, for some of us, our greatest fear may not be singleness. For some of us, it might be being poor or being lonely or being without children or being unattractive or underachieving or underappreciated. And when these fears dominate us, we might say we worship Jesus with our lips, but in reality, we worship someone or something else with our life. If we fear being poor, then we'll worship money or our career, the thing that's going to bring us in the big bucks, the thing that will functionally save us. If our version of hell is being unattractive, then we'll worship beauty or the gym, or the latest diet or fashion. If we think the worst thing that could ever happen to us is that we'd be unappreciated, unrecognized, then we'll worship the approval of others. We'll do whatever it takes to be noticed and to be recognized. Now, it can be hard for us to see these things in ourselves because in our culture, these things are just like the air that we breathe in our, we'll just say to ourselves, oh, that's, this is just entertainment, or this is just a restaurant, or just a relationship, or it's just healthy living, or it's just responsible investing, or good career advice. But I reckon if you could take someone from 2,000 years ago who worshipped God and you brought them here to Wellington, they'd walk down the road and they'd look at Sky Stadium and go, that's a temple where you people go to worship. Or they'd look at the cafes and the shops and and they'd say, they're temples where you go to give your devotion. They'd look at a gym and say, that's a temple where you go to do penance. Now, are these things bad? Are relationships or good health or good jobs or good food, are they bad? No, they're not. They're good things. Of course they're good. But the risk we take is turning these good things into God things, turning these good things into saviors, devoting our lives in worship to these idols when only God is the one who can really save. I think that's what Matthew 14 is pointing us to. See, Matthew 14 presents us a picture of Jesus as the only one worthy of our worship. The only one worthy of our devotion. The only one worthy of us giving our whole lives to. And Matthew 14 presents Jesus as this because he is the son of God. And because he is God who has come to save. Uh, Now, Matthew 14, it'd be great if you could have it open there. The first thing we see in our passage is that Jesus is worthy of our worship because of who he is. Because of who he is. Uh, And Jesus' identity is confirmed by this supernatural event on the lake, verse 22. Have a look there, verse 22 of chapter 14. Uh, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves and because of the wind, because the wind was against it. And here it is, verse 25. Shortly before the dawn, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. Uh, now, uh, some of you know, I grew up in Sydney and which means that if you grew up in Sydney and Australia, you spend a lot of your childhood or your, your growing up years in and around the water. I've, I've sailed on boats, I've fallen out of diggings, I've ridden on surfboards, but never in my whole time have I ever thought that maybe I should try and walk out on the water. It never occurred to me that that's something that I might do, but that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here. We see him placing himself over and above the physical creation as he sets out on the water. Now, did it really happen? Well, last week we saw when Jesus fed the, uh, the crowd by the lake, uh, we saw that there are some people who haven't approached the Bible with the prior conviction that miracles can't happen. They just can't happen. There is no supernatural. And if miracles can't happen, then they've got to find some other explanation as to why the Bible says this about Jesus. There must be a natural explanation for this event. And so, looking at Matthew 14, um, some people uh, they they look at this story and they go, "It didn't really happen. The early church invented this story about Jesus." They say that as time went on, uh, the, the, the the Christians in the early church they began to evolve this idea that Jesus was God. And once they kind of got to the point of evolving this idea that Jesus was God, which kind of gave them justification for a whole bunch of things they did, they then went back and amended the biographies of Jesus to back up their claim that Jesus was God. So put simply, some people say that these miracles are just stories made up about Jesus to, to bolster his authority to be God. But there's a real problem with this explanation. It rides, it rides roughshod over the historical evidence. Firstly, we know who wrote the Gospels and when they were written. The Gospels, these biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were written shortly after the events of Jesus' life. And they were written by eyewitnesses, people who were there and saw it for themselves. And the idea that these miracle stories were later additions to the Gospel, it just doesn't stack up. It doesn't even stack up with the evidence we know about Jesus from outside the Bible, where non-Christians claim that he was a worker of miraculous deeds. Another issue is that the historians believe that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they share similar uh, historical sources, but that John's gospel, the fourth gospel, was an ind- has independent sources. Uh, but the curious thing is that Matthew and Mark and John all have this miracle of Jesus walking on the water. Which means there would have been this, this level of collaboration needed to get the facts right, or this unbelievable coincidence. As unbelievable, maybe, as someone walking on the water. Now, so this isn't a late addition to the story about Jesus. Another explanation that some people give is that there was a sandbar in the lake that extended many miles out into the middle And Jesus was simply uh, walking along the sandbar, uh, which was just below the surface, giving the impression that he was walking on the water. And Jesus, the carpenter, the man who knew how to swing a hammer, not how to sail a boat, he knew about the sandbar, but the literal boatload of Galilean fishermen there who had spent their life on this sea, they apparently didn't know it was there. And again, you see, it's a struggle when the natural explanation Sends, sounds less believable than what the text actually says—that Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. It's clear, Jesus here—he's showing them who he is. He's showing us who he is. You see, it's only only God can place Himself over and above the laws of His physical creation. And it's not just walking on the water, that's the, the, the miracle that's happened. There's actually three miracles that go on here. Jesus even, he, he walks on the water and then he calms the wind and the waves. Verse 32, and when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And even more than that, only God can uh, go to a place like Gennesaret, like Jesus did, and heal all the sick. It's building up this picture here of who Jesus is. And it can't be any more clear, can it? And the disciples get it. They get who Jesus is. Have a look at verse 33 there. What do they conclude? Well, then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, you truly are the son of God. They worshipped Jesus. They worshipped him because he was the son of God. Now, the word worship there uh, in in verse 33, it means literally to kiss towards. It it, it means to fall down on your face before someone, to recognize their power, their infinite superiority to yourself, to bow down to their authority, to surrender, to give them what they are due. It's not the first time we've seen people worship Jesus in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 2, The wise men who visit the baby Jesus, they worshipped him. They fell down before him. The leper in chapter 8, the synagogue leader in chapter 9, they both fall down and kiss the ground before Jesus. But here in chapter 14, for the first time in Matthew's biography about Jesus, it's the first time where Jesus' own disciples worship him. It's the first time that Jesus' disciples properly identify who he is. He is the Son of God, they say. And I think the reason Matthew records this for us is to show us that Jesus alone is worthy of our worship. He alone is worthy of our worship because he is the Son of God. And he alone is worthy of our worship because he alone is the only one who can save He's worthy of the worship because what he is doing, he is the only one who can save. Now, see, this is not just a supernatural event that confirms the identity of Jesus. This is actually here on the lake, a salvation event that reveals the mission of Jesus, that he has come to save. Uh, Last week's passage, as Jesus fed the crowd by the lake, it had this twin thrust uh, and this passage as well has a has a twin thrust uh, Jesus walking on the water shows us that he 's the son of God, uh, but also it shows us that he is the God who saves uh, like i said before this 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 miracle it 's in uh, mark and john 's gospels as well but matthew 's gospel is the only one that includes verses twenty eight to thirty one uh, verses twenty eight to thirty one have a look there verse twenty eight uh, Lord, if it is you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Now, why does Matthew include this part of the miracle, this part of the story? Uh, well, he's trying to teach us. So what is he trying to teach us with Peter's attempt to walk on water? I actually have written, I wrote two sermons this week. Um, I wrote one on faith and doubt and unbelief. Uh, if you want to hear that one later, um, just come ask me. Um, as I looked more and more at this passage, I, I thought that's, that's an important thing that gets talked about. But uh, there's something else being said here that we're going to miss if we uh, spend too much think, time thinking about that. Uh, some, some people look at this, this episode with Peter on the water and they think it's a symbolic lesson. They think uh, that Jesus is teaching us what it's like to be one of his followers. And, and so when we kind of set out in life and there are storms that come our way, uh, this story, they say, is to remind us that we can trust in Jesus and he will get us through. Uh, we can trust he will save us from the difficulty. And I think that's true. I think that's helpful. But I think there's more going on here. Are there are other people who, who read this story of Peter walking on the water and they, they, uh, they, they see a very direct and literal promise to us here. I've heard stories of some churches and pastors who encourage their congregations to literally go out and walk on the water. And they say, if you have enough faith, if you have enough faith, you will be able to walk out across the water like Peter did. But I don't actually think this passage is making that promise. Uh, if you've been here for a little while, I don't think you'll be surprised uh, when you hear me say, I think, I think when we work out how this passage fits into the, the context of the Bible, uh, then we really see what uh, Matthew is doing here. We see what Jesus is teaching us. Because remember that this miracle happened immediately after Jesus had just fed the crowds in the wilderness. And last week we saw that that feeding miracle, it was deliberately connected with God's feeding of Israel in the Exodus as God rescued them from slavery in Egypt and he led them through through the desert into the promised land of freedom and blessing. And in the Exodus, God did not just feed his people with, uh, with manna, this kind of supernatural bread from heaven, but he also led his people to safety through the water. In the Exodus, we see that, that, that God leads his people to safety through the Red Sea and he leads them safely through the, the River Jordan and into the promised land, into the land of freedom and blessing. And so in Exodus, alongside this miraculous feeding, we have this miraculous leading as well. God leading his people through the water to salvation on the other side. And I think the Exodus is actually a blueprint for God's promise on how he'll rescue his people, how, how he'll bring them through everything that wrecks and ruins this world and bring them through to a glorious future promised land. And the Exodus, it became this definitive event for the people of God. Uh, Every Israelite was longing for God's divine intervention. They were looking forward to God to come again and feed his people. They were looking forward to God come again and lead his people, to lead them through the water and to safety and blessing in the promised land that he had for them. And added to this in the Exodus, God reveals himself to his people with his, his personal name. He reveals his identity by saying, I am who I am. The, the, the name I am is where we get the personal name of God, Yahweh. And so here in Matthew 14, as Jesus comes to his disciples on the water and they're terrified and they think they see a ghost, Jesus says to them, take courage, it is I. Literally, take courage, I am, is what he says. You see, Jesus, as he calls his disciples in the boat, he uses the very name of God from the Exodus, I am. He announces his identity with the words, I am. And in doing so, he is taking upon himself the very name of God. And so here is Jesus. He's just fed the crowds like God did in the Exodus. He's ruling the waters just like God did in the Exodus. And he's using the very name of God, I am, just like God did in the Exodus, And so it cannot be any clearer about who Jesus is and what he has come to do. You see, Jesus, he is the son of God. He is the promised saviour king and he has come to rescue God's people. To lead them out of everything that wrecks and ruins this world and to lead them into a glorious future promised land. And so, what's the appropriate response to a rescuer like that? Well, the first response has to be that of Peter, isn't it? I think Peter here, his response is is, is, is a model for us how we're to respond when it, when we when we realise that Jesus is the one who can save, that Jesus is the Son of God who has come to save. How does Jesus respond to Peter? So how does, how, does, how does Peter respond to Jesus? Verse 30. Peter cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. He called out to Jesus knowing that he, the son of God, knowing that he is the only one who can save. Now, have you ever called out to God like this? Have you ever called out to Jesus, Lord, save me? Or are you still looking for a savior in all the wrong places? Are you still looking for a savior at the bank balance or at the gym? Are you looking for a savior in the job interview or in the recognition and affirmation of others? Because Jesus is the only one who can save. He's the only one who can save. So join with Peter and cry out to him, Lord, save me. And how will Jesus respond? Well, he reaches out his hand and he catches him. Jesus will save. Call out to him and be saved. Now, I know that there are people here who have wrestled with doubt and wrestled with Uh, whether they, whether Jesus is really powerful enough to save. I want you to just notice at the moment, Peter is sinking. And part of why Peter is sinking, that Jesus identifies, is because he doubts. He sees the wind and the waves and he's scared. He's unsure. Does Jesus not save him because he's doubting? He cries out to Jesus, Lord, save me. And even as he doubts, even as he worries, Jesus reaches out and saves him. Don't ever be made to think that you need to have all your doubts go before Jesus will save you. He'll save us even through our doubt. Call out to Jesus. Jesus. Lord, save me and be saved. The next response we see to Jesus is that of the disciples. The disciples in the boat, they call out to Jesus in worship. Now, uh, worship, it's not just the singing we do on Sunday. Uh, it's not the, it, they're not giving Jesus lip service worship. Here in Matthew 14, we see a picture of of whole-of-life worship. The disciples, they have left everything to follow Jesus. And here they recognize the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. They recognize that Jesus alone can save. And we see that they didn't hold anything back. They literally followed him. Because... Jesus doesn't hold anything back either. Jesus goes to the cross. Jesus gives it all. He gives his very life for us. And so nothing short of whole of life worship, whole of life devotion to him would be an appropriate response. Now there's this idea that floats around churches that uh, we come to church to worship and uh, you can still see that uh, idea perpetuated on many church signs around uh, the city and around the country and around the world. You'll see on the church sign, it says, worship service, 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. But I heard a little while ago about a church that has a different sign. Uh, it's not a sign you see as you walk into the building, but it's a sign you see as you walk out of the building. And as you walk out of the building, you walk past a sign that says, worship begins here. You see, worship, the sort of worship that Jesus deserves, is worship that is everywhere. It's all the time living and speaking and thinking and acting in a way that gives Jesus the glory and the honor and the respect that he deserves. The sort of worship that Jesus is looking for will be nothing less because he is the Son of God He's the Son of God who has come to save. So will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these words in Matthew that show us clearly who you are, that you are the Son of God, that you are the Saviour, that you are the one who who has come to rescue and redeem your people. And Lord, we confess that we can be half-hearted people that we can look for salvation in so many other things other than you. But Lord, we, we call out to you. Lord, save us. And Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you might enable us to live whole lives in worship to you. And Lord, we pray all of this for your glory and in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, If the band want to come up, uh, we're going to respond to God's word uh, in our next song. We're going to sing these words uh, and hear them before we sing them. We're going to sing worthy of every song we could ever sing. Worthy of all the praise we could ever bring. Worthy of every breath we could ever breathe. We live for you. And why? Because Jesus is the name that is above every other name. Jesus, the only one who could save. Worthy of every breath we could breathe, we live for you. Please stand as we.